This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Hill and Katie Balls. So, former Health Secretary Matt Hancock has now survived his first day of the COVID inquiry, but is currently facing his second day. Um, James, what did we learn from his first day? Was he was he sorry for the mistakes that he made? Uh, did he have anything to say to all of his critics um, about what they said about him? So I think having covered the COVID inquiry in different weeks, we've had the political aides, we've had the civil servants, and really the two people who seem to come out worse are Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson. And this was Matt Hancock's chance to answer his critics. He hasn't really said much in the past couple of weeks about all the accusations directed towards him. You know, the one that kept cropping up in evidence from Helen McNamara and other people like, uh, you know, some of the civil servants and Patrick Valance was that there was this optimism bias and that actually statements from the health secretary had to actually be independently verified had gone away and, and actually checked because he always seemed to be giving claims which turned out not to be based in the actuality. Um, and so he really has spent the last day and a half or so making his case against that. And I think he, I think if you look at the kind of timeline here, we're obviously focusing mostly on 2020 and the initial lockdown and then the second lockdown of 2020. And I think Hancock's defence was kind of clear, which was that the plans on which preparedness was based were out of date and not up to date with not not taking into effect how humans would actually interact with the, with the pandemic when it happened you know, to take into effect to things like people would automatically shield etc i think what is most interesting really is that you know obviously he set out his case in the, in his book the pandemic diaries but is how he gets involved with the current live actors i.e the prime minister what he was doing when he was then chancellor in late 2020 and i think you know to, to clarify how this is going to go forward i reckon that the government the people who were involved in those pandemic decisions uh, 2021 they come out pretty well because we didn't lock down we had the vaccine roll that they can focus on etc um the 2021 in march of can be just dismissed slightly because it was such an initial and uncertain scenario but the second lockdown of, of October 2020 and the decisions that went around that I think that's going to be the big thing that trips people up and that's why I think it was interesting today at Matt Hancock's um, you know, session that uh, he said that Rishi Sunak was more focused as Chancellor on keeping shops open rather than schools and that will be big questions I think when the Prime Minister does give evidence the week after next. Mm. And Casey just looking ahead to that then and because Boris Johnson has yet to give his evidence in front of the inquiry hasn't he? So Hancock has now had his say or is having his say but clearly that narrative is quite hard to rest back but he's also lobbying accusations at people who are coming up later on isn't he? Yes, I think that the Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak evidence have both going to be the most high profile uh, for obvious reasons. I think that accusation, which James just mentioned about uh, wanting to close schools instead of shops in autumn of 2020, is interesting because Rishi Sunak often talks about how unfair it was that lots of children lost out on education. Um, when it came to the recent strikes and the pay offers, part of the reason they prioritised teachers' pay and agreed it with the unions before announcing it was because uh, there was a feeling that you know children had really lost so much time out of the classroom that adding it to strikes was just morally unjustifiable. So make that the priority in your way of finding the money. Therefore, if it does look as though he actually was a bit blasé at points, I think that that would be damaging. But we'll have to hear what he has to say about it. In a way, I wonder if Boris Johnson's evidence could be more enlightening than Rishi Sunak's, just because I think we knew that Rishi Sunak was a lockdown hawk, so to speak. You know, that person. And I think in a way, 
a lot of this just corresponds to your department. Matt Hancock yeah. is the Department of Health, so of course it was going to be the Dove saying, think about the strain in hospitals, think about all of these things. That was his brief. Rishi Sunak had to think about their economy, so it's likely to be the person advancing those arguments. But we know that he, behind the scenes, fought against some of the later lockdowns. And we know that he sticks with his position. He gave that long interview to Fraser during the first summer leadership contest where he spoke about, you know, in quite a lot of depth, his lockdown views. And that upset some of his own team who thought, um, you know, we don't actually want to be talking about this, but it's something he feels strongly. And um, so you can expect quite a comprehensive defence across the detail and so forth. With Boris Johnson, what has become clear from the inquiry and is clear at the time is that he constantly drifted between being a dove and being a hawk and there was that frustration lots of these whatsapp messages which they thought they'd agreed something and then uh, Boris Johnson would go and spend time with the other side and all of a sudden say actually no to lockdowns but then he'd go and speak to the other side and say yes to lockdowns and th- this feeling that having someone who was so indecisive and flow different ways made the decision making much harder therefore Now that Boris Johnson has had time since the pandemic, but also time outside number 10 to reflect, I think hearing where he sits on this, you know, which was the mistake with with hindsight with time, does he now think that, uh, you know, some of those lockdowns were a mistake? Or does he think he should have gone harder? I think probably he is the politician giving evidence who was always the most torn, who now coming to this evidence, I think it will tell us, you know, having had that, time to reflect which camp he actually thinks he should have been in from the beginning and just to pick up on Katie's point about politicians reflecting their briefs they're in it's the same thing in terms of the questioning from the covid inquiry so today for instance matt hancock has had a number of different cases representing different briefs asking about different things um so one of which was the COVID, the scottish covid brief families group and matt hancock's criticism i set out previously and reiterated today was that it was very difficult dealing with Nicola Sturgeon because often they would make they would communicate decisions to her and say we're going to announce it at this point and his complaint was that this would then be briefed out with a bit of spin on it. Now the Scottish Covid brief families KC then said well what's wrong with the First Minister of Scotland telling Scots what the news is etc um, but obviously if you're a supporter of Matt Hancock or if you're someone working for DHSC or working for number 10 that's a very different point of view so it all depends on how you know when the inquiry does conclude is which side does it come down in terms of emphasis and I can see both sides you can definitely see Nicola Sturgeon's side which is look we had to deal with a virus and we had to respond quickly equally you can see the frustration of trying to adopt a UK-wide approach or if you've got the number 10 um, you know sort of point of view so it all depends on how they conclude and to come down and how do you make those judgments really and that will be fascinating and therefore I suspect I mean obviously you know three years down the line is when they're going to be reporting but you you suspect that it will kind of find fault in all different sides rather than come down to one point of view because Covid was so all-encompassing and all-spiring. And Katie speaking of Rishi Sunak he is not in London today he's in Dubai uh, because he's gone to the COP28 summit hosted by the United Arab Emirates. King Charles has also gone uh, and gave a speech earlier today. Well, what, what does the British side hope to get out of this? Because often it has seemed like Rishi Sunak doesn't really care about the net zero agenda. Yes, and of course, last year, uh, Rishi initially suggested he wasn't going to go to COP and then changed his mind at the last minute when there was all this pressure. So you have Rishi trying to talk up the environmental achievements, saying that he's very glad King Charles can be there this time. He also wasn't there last time. Because Downing Street didn't allow him? (laughs) So it feels, I think, as though 
perhaps lessons have been learned from the last one and there's a bigger effort to be there. Now, it's a stock-taking COP in the sense that it was obviously all about 1.5, but that's now off track and there's lots of, probably the trickier political issue is about these funds for developing countries, how much money and who should provide the money really when it comes to this country is currently dealing with climate change and that's probably you know one of the trickier points on it. I think that Rishinik clearly gets accused of abandoning net zero. I think it is certainly the case that he is less animated about the topic than Boris Johnson. I do think when you look at the targets he has changed, though, so for example, the car one, we're now in line with Europe. Mm. It's not as low. (laughs) He has, you know, junked a a huge part of the agenda. And Labour support one of the two things he did, which is the delay of the boiler ban. It's just where the five years on cars is where there is a disagreement to the two main parties. But I think it is the case that he's always been much more aware of the trade-offs mm. and I think visibly perhaps recoiled when it comes to, you know, how some of these targets, so the net zero target was just, you know, passed through under the Theresa May regime without little debate about what it meant. But I think with Keir Starmer also going to COP, you have uh, two leaders who on net zero are never exactly sure what they want to say. Clearly, Labour with the green spending and, you know, sticking to that car target want to sound more environmental. I think you can say do have more, they of course do have more ambitious environmental targets, including on the energy transition. But the way the the Shadow Treasury always wants to talk about it is... Rishi Sunak and the Tories are anti-growth because they keep changing these targets and that's Mm -hmm. bad for business. And you know, it turns out business love green subsidies and we've got more of that. Whereas people like Ed Miliband, who's also going to be there, are much more, you know, we're doing it because it's the right thing. It's the morally right thing. So even within Labour, I think there's a caution about how exactly you play it. And I think you can see from across the continent that, you know, some of these parties on the far right uh, often also anti-net zero and you know it's not the only reason some of them are rising in support in some countries but I think it is a warning of when you don't bring people with you what can happen. Mm. And James what leads the Times today as well as Rishi Sunak's warning that China needs to do more on climate change so that's quite a um, explicit uh, name checking from the Prime Minister. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's hardly a surprise. I think I think that Rishi Sunak, um, you know, takes a different view of all of this than, say, Boris Johnson. I think that's the imp- first thing, first of all, is, you know, think about COP26 two years ago, the political climate we were in back then, and it was very much all behind the green agenda. Since then, I think two years on, we've had a cost of living crisis, and it's been seen, rightly or wrongly, that the green agenda perhaps dis- distracts from that or deflects from that. Um, and so I think that's how Rishi Sunak sees it, much more kind of treasury terms. And so I think that, yeah, it's no surprise then that rather than having kind of this sort of Boris Johnson-esque rhetoric we saw two years ago with Britain as a kind of uh, leading role where everyone's sort of coming together, holding hands, etc. I think that it's no surprise that Rishi Sunak will be looking at the books and with a sort of quite critical eye on what China's been doing. And of course, you wrote your very good cover piece in this, in this week's magazine, uh, talking about China's role in uh, electric vehicles. (laughs) And I think that's a real difference from two years ago when The Spectator had a great cover on uh, the Green Games and the kind of great um, circus of that and the razzmatazz, etc. with King Boris as the emperor at the Green Games. And I think now we're we're looking at this through a much more cynical lens. Um, And I think that's a reflection of the economic downturn that's happened and also the political consequences of that and uh, you know Boris Johnson's replacement uh, by Rishinak. Yeah absolutely and, and my piece is basically just looking at how you know Katie mentioned the petrol car 
ban pushback and actually what was happening in Downing Street was they realised if it was 2030 where you ban new petrol and diesel cars, you'd basically be handing the UK electric car market to China, which already dominates a third of British new EVs sold. So, you know, when it comes to affordable EVs, China is basically, or Chinese companies are uh, really, really competitive, much more than, let's say, your Teslas or other things. Uh, and so they were concerned about that. But my piece also raises the question of, well, you know, if you're going to start pushing back these deadlines, uh, if you're going to start worrying about China's dominance of just not just the EV market, but other renewables, what are you going to do about it instead? You know, what is British industry going to do in order to start competing with China? We see the Americans and the Europeans putting forward massive subsidies. The UK can't really afford that. So I think the point is about picking some champions. Yeah, I also think, though, that, you know, Rishi Sunak's comments were also intended not really particularly adversarial in the kind of sort of trust site mode, but the fact that he said that all countries, and that includes China, which is obviously vitally important, have to take action. So it was, I wouldn't say it was sort of a, you know, admonishing China, much more trying to include them as part of the conversation, which probably reflects the kind of shift we've seen in the rhetoric from China over the past 12 months or so. And the new foreign secretary, perhaps? Uh, perhaps Lord Cameron uh, of Golden Era fame. <laughs> James Hill and Katie Balls, thanks so much. And uh, thank you so much for listening at home as well. If you enjoy this podcast, do rate and review us. And why not tell a friend about it too?